You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Adam and I were joined by Jason Larkin. Jason was a fan favorite, so we decided to bring him back along for another conversation. Both Adam and Jason bring a lot of valuable experience and insight into today's somewhat complicated topic of impairment. We'll talk about this more in the episode, but impairment models are different based on the type of asset you're dealing with. Today, we focused our discussion on non-financial assets and all of the intricate details that should be considered when assessing impairment for these non-financial assets. We hope you enjoy the discussion and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage, and as always, I'm joined by my much smarter co-host, Adam Olson, and today we have the pleasure of welcoming back Mr. Jason Larkin, the Managing Director here in Dallas. Today, we will be tackling impairment of non-financial assets, which is a lot like trying to tackle a 300-pound center, because there's so much to cover on this. So we'll give it our best shot and start running full speed. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big one. Um, So it's also a topic that's top of mind, uh, especially over the past year and a half with all of the economic and operational challenges that 2020 brought. So I know there are a lot of different impairment models out there, depending on the type of non-financial asset. But before we look at the different models, Adam, can you give our listeners an understanding of what kind of assets we're talking about when we say non-financial assets? Yeah, sure. So when we're talking about non-financial assets, especially in the context of impairment, we're, we're really referring to things like property, plant, and equipment. Um, it could even be a right-of-use asset if you're applying the new leasing standard. Um, both your finite and your indefinite live and tangible assets, um, as well as goodwill. And so many reporting entities have you know different types of non-financial assets, and they all have different types of impairment models. So um, it's kind of important to, you know, for sure understand the different models to apply to which of the different assets you may have on your balance sheet. And do impairment models change based on the type of non-financial asset we are dealing with? Yeah, they do. So like, like I mentioned, it's important if you got multiple um, non-financial assets that you know which model you're going to apply. So for example, Goodwill is under ASC 350, you know, dash-20 subtopic. You know, it's generally a one-step impairment if you've adopted the simplification. You know, you do it annually. Um, it has the ability to do a kind of a qualitative assessment as well. Um, indefinite live intangibles, they're also under ASC 350, just subtopic 30. And it's also similar to Goodwill. It's an annual requirement, one-step impairment, also a qualitative option there. And then long-lived assets, they, they actually are in a different um, section of the codification. So it's ASC 360 here. So you use the, the long-lived asset impairment model, which is essentially a, a two-step model. Um, you know, the biggest difference here is there's no annual requirement. It's really a trigger-based assessment. So when you've got certain triggering events that, you know, may suggest that an impairment could be there is when you test. And do these different impairment models need to occur in a particular order? They do. And it's important that you do them in the order because if there are adjustments that need to be made to the, you know, kind of the carrying amounts of the assets, um, you do those in the correct order before you apply the next impairment test. So you kind of start with your, you know, your your shorter term, you know, f- could be financial or just kind of working capital assets. So like, you know, accounts receivable, you may have to adjust for your AR reserves, inventory for, you know, maybe slow moving obsolete inventory type reserves, things like that, adjust those. Then you moved into the indefinite live intangible asset test. If you have that, um, if there's any impairment there, you would obviously write that down. 
Next is the long-lived asset. So your fixed assets, your right-of-use assets, um, your intangibles that are subject to amortization, any adjustments there. And then finally, you end with goodwill. Okay, yeah. Sounds like there's a lot of intricacies. And like I said, it's a 300-pound center we're trying to tackle. So maybe we'll focus our discussion today just on the model for long-lived assets. Otherwise, this podcast could be two hours long, and I don't think anyone wants to listen to two hours of accounting, even our most loyal accounting nerds. So let's take a deeper dive into some of the key considerations that we need to keep in mind as we apply the guidance for long-lived assets. Jason, can we talk more about when a test needs to be performed and how this trigger-based criteria is applied? Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad we're just focusing on 360 because everything else Adam (laughs) laid out, there's there's a lot to unpack there. But when we think about 360 and the impairment test, it really is this trigger-based factors that's really kicks off the overall um, assessment that you have to think about. And really what that's doing is thinking about the carrying value and is that recoverable, which is why um, you, you hear oftentimes people refer to it as the recoverability test from a step one perspective. There's a couple of different trigger-based factors that you would consider. And um, I'm just gonna refer to my notes here on on some of those, because I think it's important to understand this is the actual examples that are laid out in the guidance. So as we think about um, companies really assessing this, it's important to think holistically about all these different potential events. So some of them include a significant decrease in the market price of the long-lived assets that you actually have um, on your books or adverse change in the manner or extent which that asset is actually being used or its physical condition. So really assessing how is it being used? Is it continuing to being used in the same way that it's historically been used? Or has there been a significant change in that? Um, Then we think about change in legal factors, business climate, Um, other environmental factors that are obviously very prevalent today. Some of that may be regulatory influence, right? You think about regulators making changes that have an impact on our business, needing to evaluate some of those. Then any costs, like if you think about what you were planning to incur from a construction perspective, if it's significantly more than that, that may be a triggering event that you have to think about. Um, then really looking at your current operations, so current cash flow, um, current projections as it relates to how those assets are being used, if there's been significant decreases historically or recently, really just something you need to assess and think about, is that a triggering event? And then the last one is really on the expectations that it's more likely than not that that long-lived asset will be sold or disposed of significantly before the end of its previously estimated useful life, which I know is a mouthful, but you think about what you were thinking was gonna be the useful life if now things have changed and you may dispose of that or sell it significantly before that, another event that you need to think about. So a a lot of different events that are laid out in the guidance that we need to consider. And are those, events that you laid out. Is that like a checklist where if a certain number of the criteria are met, then we we would move into that step two? Or is it not a checklist? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, this is not a simple checklist that you just go through and say yes, yes, no. You really have to look at all of those different factors, which is why we went through that in such detail. It's important to really think holistically do you know? Do I have events that really check off a lot of these boxes? Is it just one specific event? That may not mean that just because you have one event that you don't ultimately have a triggering event, but it's really important to assess 
all of the factors, both good and bad, to determine if there's been a triggering event that's occurred. Okay, so let's say a triggering event has occurred. On what date does the company perform its two-step impairment test? Yep, so I'll give you the very stereotypical consulting answer. It depends, right? Um, (laughs) Nobody's ever heard that before. So ultimately you have to look at, is there a specific triggering event that's occurred that gives rise to this need to um, you know, assess or you know, think about it from a step one perspective. So sometimes you have a specific event that occurs, a, a transaction or some other type of event that you can look at and say, okay, this is the specific triggering event. In that case, if there is an event that you can specifically point to, that would be the date that you assess for impairment. That's not always the case. We do have, you know, companies have, have had situations where there's really a culmination of events that occur where you get to the end of a reporting period and there is this indicator of impairment. The, the simple example that I think we've seen very recently that unfortunately a lot of us are familiar with is the impact of COVID, right? And so COVID wasn't one specific event that we can go back to a specific day and say this is when COVID impacted our organization. But as you think about calendar year-end reporting companies going through Q1, going through Q2 reporting, really all of the events that happened in and around COVID ultimately gave rise to indicators for some companies that there was a need to assess. So sometimes it's a specific event, but it doesn't always have to be the case. Makes sense. So Adam, you mentioned in the impairment model overview that an impairment test for long-lived assets is performed at an asset group level. Mm -hmm. For people who may not be familiar with what that means, could you kind of give a little bit of a definition for what an asset group is and maybe an example of what that might look like? Yeah, and it may be best to help compare and contrast with goodwill, because I think a lot of people are familiar with kind of the goodwill impairment process and approach there. So an asset group, you know, simply is the unit of account for long lived assets that we use to test for impairment. Um, You know, on the flip side, goodwill, it's a reporting unit. Um, The big differences between an asset group and a reporting unit is that an asset group is really just the lowest level that a company has independent cash flows um, that exist. Um, And it's it's simply just that. So it's cash flows at the lowest level that you can actually pull the data and have that data. And that's because you needed to perform the recoverability tests. Um, whereas Goodwill is really based on kind of the segment reporting guidance to help determine your reporting units. And that's primarily kind of a management viewpoint. So how management views the business is really kind of how reporting units are determined. Um, so asset groups, you know, I guess in summary, don't require any type of management, you know, viewpoint or anything like that, it's really just, you know, um, cash flows. And as a result, it would likely be that your asset groups are going to be at a lower level than a reporting unit. And you'll probably have numerous, you know, asset groupings. Makes sense. So practically, how would a company determine their asset groups? Yeah, so this is, uh, I think it's like U.S. GAP's favorite word, um, judgment is involved (laughs) um, here, obviously. So, you know, a company is really going to have to look at their financial information and try to just figure out, like, where is the lowest level that we have cash flows that are available for a group of assets um, where they're, you know, essentially largely independent of other assets. You know, if there's assets that are, you know, kind of dependent on each other, it may not suggest that they're independent cash flows. Um, and that's going to vary from entity to entity because everyone kind of maybe tracks things a little bit differently depending on you know the type of business, how things are structured. 
Um, so there isn't like a one size fits all approach, which is, you know, why judgment is necessary. And even in, you know, certain cases, you really have to think about are there asset groups that depend on other asset groups where there's, you know, sort of some interdependency between those asset groups. And maybe that would suggest that we need to test, you know, impairment at a higher asset group level. So kind of picking up on that, it sounds like there's the potential for combining asset groups. Uh, if so, when would it be appropriate to combine those groups? Yeah, so it, it really comes down to this interdependency. So if there really are asset groups that depend on each other, you know, there may be justification to combine the asset groups and test them either together or at a higher level with other asset groups. Um, and when people really think about interdependency, they, they, they tend to focus on two kind of factors. Um, one is looking at revenues interdependency. So it could be, you know, if you've got different asset groups that maybe operate in a similar geography, you know, they could kind of depend on each other. A lot of times you'll see that like in retail space, for example, um, they may have two store locations that are near each other. One is a strong performer, one is a low performer, but they have that low performer there because it helps drive competition away. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in isolation, that low performer might be, you know, potentially could have impairment, but really what the company would argue is that, hey, these two locations work together because they, you know, they draw business to the area, but they also help keep competitors out and keep it, you know, keep us, you know, profitable in that in that geography. So um, that might be one example where you know revenues interdependency makes sense. You know, also if there's asset groups that kind of share products and services with other asset groups and offer those to customers, it may be a way to combine asset groups as well. Um, the other side is looking at costs. So if there's, you know, significant shared costs, you know, sometimes people will argue that because of the significance, you know, dependency on those shared costs that those asset groups should be combined. But like I said, it's it's a judgmental exercise and it's, you know, it definitely depends on probably the industry you're in and at what level you have asset groupings and, you know, really thinking kind of holistically about is there really interdependency here? Does the company ever need to reevaluate or revise the asset groups at any point? Yeah, they can. Um, you know, there could be changes in your business that obviously suggest that it's it's necessary to, you know, reevaluate your asset groupings. You know, you could dispose of a piece of a business, you could acquire new, you know, you could do acquisitions or acquire assets or whatever to change the business. There could be just a restructuring of the business internally, change in management for how information is tracked or flowed. So different reasons um, why asset groupings might change. So it is probably prudent to, you know, at least take a look at those asset groups from time to time to make sure that they're still appropriate. And any changes to an asset grouping is really just kind of a change in estimate. So there's there's no need for preferability or anything if you want to change asset groupings. It's a change in estimate, so you would account for those changes prospectively. You know, but one thing you do want to keep in mind if there potentially are changes in an asset group, because maybe it's the way the asset group was being used, kind of going back to Jason's point that, you know, sometimes that could be also just an, an indicator of impairment as well, just a change in the use of the asset grouping. All right. Well, one last question on asset groups. How does a company handle impairment of long-lived assets that may not have their own identifiable cash flows? Like I'm specifically thinking of maybe a company headquarters. How does the guidance for ASC 360 apply to those? Those kind of like enterprise or corporate type assets, like a corporate headquarters or something that really doesn't have separate cash flows for itself. Um, you know, the guidance will basically suggest that you really should use the entity-wide cash flows and include all assets and liabilities in that grouping. 
of the entity to perform the test. Okay, so we know when to perform the test. We know kind of what level we need to perform the test. So let's back up and talk about actually performing the test. So what are the two steps for evaluating impairment? Yeah, so Jason you know, kind of hinted at this with talking about recoverability. So step one is the recoverability test, mm -hmm. which is basically where the asset group will use its undiscounted cash flows and compare those undiscounted cash flows to the carrying value of the asset group. If the undiscounted cash flows are greater than the carrying value, then you pass the recoverability. Those assets are recoverable, and so you would essentially stop there. Um, however, if the you know, cash flows were le less than the carrying value of the um, asset grouping, you would have to proceed to step two, which is where you measure impairment. Um, so when you measure impairment, it's more from like a fair value perspective here. So it's looking at the fair value of the asset grouping and comparing it to its carrying value and any difference between the fair value of the asset group from its carrying value would be your impairment charge. So it sounds like there's a chance under this model that even with a triggering event, you might not have an impairment charge. Yeah, you could. So, I mean, you could have a triggering event, go to step one. Obviously, you've got enough, you know, undiscounted cash flows for that asset group that you, you don't have any impairment. And even, you know, oddly enough, in some cases, like when you get to step two, there may be circumstances where when you, from a fair value perspective, when you look at the cash flows of the asset grouping, it may not also suggest that there's any impairment charged or record. And usually the basis for that is because in step one, the recoverability test, you're using more of the entity's specific cash flows, whereas step two, since it's a fair value premise, you're going to use market participant assumptions, which is going to suggest the use of the highest and best use of the asset grouping. So sometimes when you're using those kind of market participant assumptions, you end up not having an impairment charge as well. All right. Well, Adam mentioned undiscounted cash flows, which I know can be pretty complicated. So Jason, what are some key things to keep in mind when developing cash flows in this step? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's important as companies are going through cash flows, given everything Adam just said, that we really understand some of the key components. So a couple of those are, it really needs to be the company's own assumptions about the organization that they have developed. And then second, it really needs to be based on the current operations of the organization and any disposal of the asset groups that are planned. So not um, any projected acquisitions, those shouldn't be included as part of our cash flows. It's really just the current operations of the business. Um, then the period of time for the cash flow, this is something that I think a lot of companies try and think about is, okay, I've got my cash flows, but what length of time? And that's really going to be based on the life of the primary asset. So that useful life will dictate how far out we take the cash flows. And then the fourth, fourth thing to think about is that these cash flows should exclude any financing charges when you're coming up with those total cash flows. All right. So I know from my experience with cash flows, there's a lot of uncertainty. <laughs> there's a lot of judgment, a lot of estimating. And you put your former ad auditor hat on, and I'm just thinking there's red flags flying everywhere. So Jason, is it does it ever make sense for them to create multiple cash flow scenarios to kind of CYA? Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it does make sense. Oftentimes, companies will come up with a single best estimate. But as we've seen in 2020, 
as uncertainty increases, I think that's where there may become situations where it does make sense to do multiple scenarios, do some sort of weighted average probability. So sometimes we do see that it's not super common, but it is something to consider when you're thinking about complexity, uncertainty, and just overall nature of what you're having to estimate. All right, and then backing up a little bit, you mentioned the term primary asset yep. when we were kind of discussing those cash flow considerations. How does an entity determine which asset is primary in its asset group for purposes of developing those yep. cash flows? Yeah, and I think this, just to reiterate, the importance of this is that primary asset, you take that useful life to build out the cash flow. So that's why this is such an important assessment as you're going through. So that primary asset really needs to be the principal depreciable asset that, that helps generate the cash flows. So it would not be an indefinite live, it would not be a non-depreciable asset such as land. So you really have to think about what are all the assets, what is that principal depreciable asset um, within that asset group that helps generate the cash flows. Um, there is some judgment here, so it's important to really assess and think about what are all those assets when you determine that primary asset. And what if that primary asset has a limited remaining useful life? Yeah, so unfortunately the guidance doesn't change. You still have to think about what is that life of that primary asset. Um, you know, the And then you take that asset and that, that generates your cash flows. One of the things that this often does is place more significance on the sale of that asset at the end, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have a limited period of time for our cash flows, we're placing even more emphasis on the value of what you're gonna sell it for when we come up with our total cash flows. Um, so just another thing to consider, shorter life, more of an impact on that sale. Does it ever make sense to revise the estimate of the remaining useful life? Yes, yeah, so it's definitely something to consider if there's been changes in events and circumstances that give rise to, okay, we thought it was going to be five years, now we think it's gonna be 10 years. Mm -hmm. One thing that's important though is you cannot just proactively revise the useful life to avoid impairment. So <laughs> what? <laughs> I know, crazy, right? <laughs> so you still would have to assess, is there an impairment, record that impairment, and then proactively on a go forward basis, adjust that useful life. It would be a change in estimate that you would have to follow the general guidance. So it is available, but it's not a get out of jail and I don't have <laughs> yeah. to record an impairment uh, card you can play. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> it has to be a basis for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Rules. <laughs> All right, well, let's say we fill step one and we move into step two, where you measure the impairment loss. Adam, what does a company need to keep in mind when they're performing this step? Yeah, the I think the important thing here is just remembering that this is a fair value premise in step two. So you're trying to measure you know, the impairment charge, which is the difference between the fair value of the asset group and the carrying value of the asset group. And that fair value concept is, you know, it's based on the fair value standard, ASC 820. Um, and again, it's got to include, you know, market participant assumptions and kind of the estimations that go into the cash flows and, you know, discount rates and other, you know, growth factors and things like that, that, you know, are attributes to coming up with that analysis. And I say that in the context of obviously an income approach, which is probably the most common um, way to assess fair value of asset groupings is, you know, we've been talking about cash flows and cash flows, you've already got like a cash flow analysis for step one. So yeah. inherently, <laughs> it makes sense that you're going to do some type of discounted cash flow for the fair value assessment in step two, you just want to make sure that your entity-specific assumptions, if you plan to use those, are also representative of market participants. And if not, you would need to make adjustments to those assumptions in step two. 
Okay, so we've measured our impairment loss under step two. How is that then allocated among the various assets in the asset group? Yeah, so the impairment charge essentially gets allocated like pro rata um, to any of the other long-lived assets in the asset grouping itself. Um, so you want to make sure that you're not going to you know, allocate any charge to any other assets that aren't subject to impairment under the ASC 360 model. So if you've got goodwill in there or other intangibles or shorter term assets, like those things shouldn't get any of the um, impairment charge itself. It really should be pro rata to the, the kind of long lived assets that are in that asset group. Okay. And can a company ever reverse a previously taken impairment charge? Not under US GAAP. So once the charge is taken, you can't ever recover that charge. Um, so essentially what you do is you write down that long-lived asset to its new kind of carrying um, value. It's its new cost basis. Um, I think one thing that people do tend to forget here is when you establish a new cost basis, you technically have to wipe out any existing amortization or depreciation that was you know, recorded for that asset. So you now just have a new cost basis, and now you're going to have a new like depreciation, amortization, accumulation that'll that'll build up over the remaining life of that asset. Sounds like toothpaste. <laughs> Once it comes out, you can't put yep. it back in. It does not go back in. <laughs> All right. Well, let's land the plane by talking about the reporting considerations. Based on what I know about GAAP, I'm guessing there are some disclosure requirements um, around any asset impairments taken as a result of applying this. So, Jason, can you... Explain yep. some of those. Yeah, you're you're right. There's definitely some disclosure requirements. Always. There's there's a reason that the gap checklist is uh, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of pages. Yeah. yeah. So when we think about in a situation where you go through the model that we just described and end up with an impairment, there's a couple of key things from a disclosure perspective. One is you have to disclose the amount of the impairment loss, a description of what assets. Um, or asset was impaired, what actually drove that impairment, um, and really the nature of that impairment. So that way users of the financials can really understand all of the information. It's not just put the number in and you're good to go. You've really got to provide broader context around the impairment. What about the risk of future impairments a company might expect? Are there any requirements to disclose those? Yeah, there are. Um, under ASC 275, there's definitely a need to think about, are there any material impairment charges in the future? So you think about what would be reasonably possible and material impact the financial statements and those disclosures um, you would need to include. Some of the other disclosures in addition to ASC 275 is also around the fair value of ASC 820. So you think about all of what we talked about, about cash flows, determining that fair value, as Adam described, that's something else that would need to be disclosed is the valuation techniques that were used, key assumptions, um, and key inputs that determined that ultimate fair value that led to that impairment. And how long does a reporting entity need to keep their disclosures? Yeah, so ultimately it's going to be um, presented within the financials as long as the impairment charge, that period, is presented in the financials. So for most companies, that's going to be two or three years, depending upon your filing status. But as long as you have the period presented where that impairment is charged on the face of the financial statements, you would continue to include those disclosures for the users of the financials. All right. Well, I think that's a lot to take in. I'm pretty sure we tripped the 300-pound center and, and got them on the <laughs> ground at least. <laughs> so we'll have more episodes diving into impairment considerations for Goodwill, and we might even invite Jason back if he's lucky. 
Um, Love to. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> for those of you who want more information on non-financial asset impairments, we'll include links in the description for more material on this topic. Thank you to both Adam and Jason for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe or write us a review and feel free to share your thoughts on future podcast episodes. We hope you found this discussion helpful and look forward to having you join us again on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.